pray together. In Christ alone, we stand. In Christ alone. Lord Jesus, we believe in the power of the gospel. And today, as we talk about you, God, it just brings joy to our hearts to celebrate what you've done in us, around us, and through us. So God, Lord Jesus, to you be the glory in this day forever and always. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So today we are continuing our series, Anchored, which comes from a verse in Hebrews 6, 19, which says this, we have this hope as an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. And our desire is to have a faith that's anchored in God's truth so that our soul is secure in God. That's our desire. And so we've been studying what are called the five solas, and sola is a Latin word that means alone or only. And the five solas, they came out of the Protestant Reformation, and what they are is their foundation for what it means to find salvation in Christ, that it's based on Scripture alone, through grace alone, by faith alone, and today we'll talk about the object of our faith, which is sola Christus, Christ alone. And this statement comes from the very words of Jesus himself as he claimed to be the one and only way to God. You see, Jesus said in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Now, I realize for some that kind of makes us squirm a little bit in our chair, right? I mean, one way to God, but I encourage you to hear Jesus out and listen to what he has to say. After all, many of us are on this search, a sincere search to find God and truth, and Jesus is saying that this is a way, and it's at least worth listening to. You see, Jesus says, I am the way. Now, the word way in the original Greek language is the word for road, and so in some ways, Jesus is standing before humanity with a road sign saying, there is a way, you're looking for a way, there is one way, and I am that one way. Now you can feel that this might be a little arrogant, right? A little exclusive, but go with me here just for a moment. And let's just suppose for a moment that what Jesus Christ says is true. Just suppose for a moment because if it is true, then Jesus' message is one of the most loving and compassionate messages that we could ever hear. We're going to look at some of the things that Jesus claimed about himself. And if those claims are true, then what Jesus says very well may be the one and only way to God. Now, I know some of us might get stuck there. One way. How could there be just one way to God? And if you're there, you know what, you're actually in the majority of the American viewpoint because up to 62% of Americans believe in something like this, 
the merge sign. And that's that all religions are basically true. And if you just sincerely follow them, eventually they all sort of merge into God. And we find God that way. Well, the problem is that although there are many things that religions agree upon and have in common, there are specific, very dramatic differences even contradictory things that they say that can't all be true at once. For instance, Hinduism believes that after you die, you're reincarnated and come back to earth into a different being or creature until eventually your soul is liberated. Now, Buddhism believes that after you die, that you go to one of six different realms depending on the karma that you built in your life when you're here on earth. Islam teaches that the afterlife is either the, the fulfillment of your greatest desires or punishment, depending on how you lived your life on earth. Atheists believe that after you die, you basically rot. <laughs> so I ask this question, is God illogical? Is he confused? And when I look around the world and I look at the order of our universe, it just doesn't seem to match God's character that he would send such a confusing message or that a loving God would have us just sort of figure out on our own how to find him. Would a loving God want us to work our way to find salvation, compete with one another to earn his favor? You see, most religions do just that. It's about kind of working your way to a certain level of favor. It's kind of like this sign right here, men at work. Whether it's building karma or reaching deeper levels of reincarnation or higher levels of paradise, we have to work and work at it. And how do we know when we've worked enough, when we've done enough? Is that what it's a matter of? I mean, when Pastor Ron mentioned the dilemma that we have last week, what can wash away my sin? Does good works wash away my sin? Is good enough, even good enough, for a holy and righteous judge? You see, what separates Jesus Christ from all of the others is that Jesus doesn't say do. He says done. He says, you can't do enough, but I've done it for you. I've done the work. I've died in your place. I've taken your place in the punishment that separates you from God. I've done for you what you can't do for yourself. And for that reason, there's this sign, which is probably the most offensive of all. You know, it's fine to say that you found a way. But it's a whole other thing to say that any other way is wrong. Why, that's narrow-minded. It's offensive. It's even hateful. But I want you to carefully consider what does this sign actually mean? How is it actually used? You see, this sign is an important warning, reminder to people that if you were to head directly into oncoming traffic, why that could lead to dire consequences, possible death or destruction. So this elderly gentleman is driving along the freeway in his Cadillac. And as he's driving, his cell phone rings, and he just grabs it and picks it up. And his wife is on the other line, and, and she's panicked. She says, Herman, I just heard that on the news, 
that someone's driving the wrong way on 280. Please be careful, Herman. Herman says, heck, Martha. It's not just one car, it's hundreds of cars. <laughs> Someone needs to tell Herman he's going the wrong way. <laughs> I honestly believe that we can respectfully acknowledge other religions and beliefs without having to embrace them on our own. You know, tolerance used to be that we could respectfully and kindly agree to disagree without having to embrace another faith as our own. Today, tolerance means, well, what's true for you doesn't necessarily mean that that's true for me. See, we're both holding on to truth. It's all true, which just doesn't make any sense because truth itself stands alone as being exclusive. It separates itself from all other things that contradict it. That's the very definition of truth. When my daughter, Brooke, was born, she was born five and a half weeks early. Caught us totally by surprise. It was a shock. We were not ready. And being a preemie, the whole neonatal team came in to the delivery room, and they were ready. And so as soon as she was born, they just grabbed her and stuck her on the table, and they're poking her and prodding her and the whole, looking at her and the whole thing. Now, fortunately, she looked pretty good. Now, she was a little gooey, um, but she was healthy. And so they let us take her home. And not long after we got her home, you know, we started to notice she started to look a little yellowish, all right? And knowing that she wasn't a banana, um, we had a nurse friend come over to take a look at her and check her out. And the nurse encouraged us to take her right back to the hospital. So we did. And the doctor told us, oh, you know what? Your baby has jaundice. And so what we need to do is we need to take her. We need to put her into an incubator. She needs to be under some special lights. That'll help clear this up. Her liver will activate, get the billy room. It'll be all great and fine. Now, I could have said to the doctor, okay, doc, you know what? I, I actually have a different idea. What I'm thinking is that we'll take her home. We'll get out some soap and some bleach and scrub her down real good, and that'll get her all pink again. Now, the doctor would have said to me, no, there's only one way to solve this problem, and you need to follow my advice. And I could have said to the doctor, Okay, Doc, you know, I see what you're saying here, and I get that that's your opinion and your truth, but I have my own beliefs here, and I'm just thinking if we just sort of wait this thing out a little bit, it'll all go away. And he would have said to me, right? No, you don't understand. You are jeopardizing your daughter's life. There's only one way to cure her, and you need to trust me. Take a look at the certificates on my wall. I have studied at the greatest medical institutions. And I'm using that knowledge. I've used it for hundreds of babies just like yours to help them restore them back to health. Trust me. So would it actually be narrow-minded to follow that doctor's advice? No, not at all. And I'm glad that we did because we've enjoyed more than 16 years with our wonderful daughter, Brooke, because we followed the one and only way that the doctor said would save her. And see, true love speaks the truth. God's word says this in Acts 4.12. It says, there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. So did Jesus Christ have reliable credentials? Can he be trusted, relied upon, 
Are his claims something reasonable to consider? Is this something I can anchor my life to? That's what we're going to look at today. So I want to take, if you can, take your message notes out of your program, and we're going to begin to study how we anchor our hope in Christ alone. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Colossians chapter uh, 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, the verses will be up here on the screen. I encourage you to follow along. And by the way, if you don't own your own Bible, um, please go ahead and grab one on the lobby on the way out. We just want to give that to you as a free gift. So our first point is this. How we anchor our hope in Christ alone. First point is acknowledge that Jesus Christ is God. Let's start off by talking about God and his character. 1 Peter 1.16 says, God says that he's holy, that he's perfect, unchanging, morally right and just. That God says we can trust his character because he always acts according to his character because that's who he is. See, God speaks truth because he is truth. And God has always existed. He was never created. He always has been. He always will be. He's the author and the creator of life. And that's why in the first chapter of Romans, if you go back and read that, you'll see that very clearly it says that the universe explains and gives evidence of God, that he created it because all the characteristics of God are evident in his creation. You see, the universe gives evidence that it was created by an outside source, a source that's all-powerful, all-knowing, a perfect designer, a creator, a creative God. Now that makes just so much sense to me. What does not make sense to me is that nothing exploded into something and that something with no outside influence whatsoever suddenly designed and ordered itself perfectly into millions of complex interrelated intelligent systems of life that are all around us and within us. You're not crazy if you believe that God created the universe. So let's see what the Bible says about who Jesus is. In Colossians 1, 15 to 17, it says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme above all creation for through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Wow. Okay. So that's one incredible claim. But can Jesus back this up? Now, what's interesting about Jesus Christ above and beyond any other religious figure that was ever born and ever walked the earth is that Jesus demonstrated divine attributes. He did what only God could do. You see, Jesus Christ was born a miraculous birth. Jesus Christ fulfilled more than 300 prophecies, things that were told about him hundreds of years before he was ever even born, things that he had no control over like where and how he'd be born and how he died. See, these validate not only Jesus, but they also validate God's word. And Jesus performed miracles. He made things appear from nothing. He reformed matter. 
And these things were done in front of Jesus' greatest critics. And not only that, even secular historians of his time validated and documented his miracles. And then Jesus rose from the dead. <laughs> he predicted he would raise himself from the dead. And then after he died and his disciples scattered and were hiding, he rose from the dead and he appeared to them. And these disciples that were hiding in fear then went out and spread the news like wildfire. 500 different people saw Jesus and his resurrection was written and recorded and the news was spread while live witnesses were still alive. You could walk up, you could read it and just say, did this really happen? Yeah, it happened. I was there. I saw it. I saw it with my own eyes. That's why the church exploded with growth from the very beginning. You see, Jesus claimed he would rise again. Now, if he didn't rise again, his words would have died with him. And today, nearly one-third of the entire earth's population claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. Now, you have to admit, there's something to that. Billions of people devoting themselves to a man who died 2,000 years ago. Why is that? Colossians tells us that Jesus is God. That he's always existed, that he created all things, that he holds all things. He has ultimate authority, all things in his power. Jesus stands above all others as completely unique as being fully God. And when we acknowledge that, we place our hearts in God's hands, you see. See, God created us carefully, with care, and with love. So we reflect his glorious image, and we could be in relationship with him forever. He gave us a mind to think like him. He gave us a heart with emotion and love. He gave us creativity, and he gave us a will to choose so to be like him. He didn't create robots or automatrons. He gave us the ability to choose so that we could reflect his greatest character, which is love. You see, because love is a choice. And it brings such great joy to the heart of God when we choose to love him and choose to love others. But see, with the ability to choose, with an independent will, we can also choose not to love. Why, we can choose to reject, to despise, and to hate. And that's what we've done with God. You see, to not follow and obey God and to be our own God and live our own life on our own what we do is we live our lives apart from him. We usurp him. We rebel against him. And we become his enemy. I don't think we even begin to scratch the surface of understanding of how utterly heinous and evil that is. It literally kills. We make up our own ways. We live our own life, our own rules. We make up our own religions to make ourselves look good, to serve ourselves rather than serving and loving God. And this act of treason brings death and separation from God. And God, who is a perfect and righteous judge, can't just look down from heaven and just say, oh, you know, it's not a big deal. I'll just overlook this sin. No sin demands payment by death. God loves you so much. 
his love is so strong that he did the unthinkable. He sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to take away your sin. And that leads to our next point. To acknowledge that Jesus Christ is a perfect man. To acknowledge that Jesus Christ is a perfect man. God the Son came to earth and was born as a human being, as Jesus Christ. And John, one of the disciples who spent three years with Jesus, 24 hours a day with Jesus all the time, he says this, The Word became flesh and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. You see, Jesus is both fully man and fully God. Colossians 1, 18 to 20 says, Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he's the first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ and through him reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. You see, the reason that our own attempts to rid ourselves of sin or to work our way to heaven, the reason they don't work is that we're captive to sin. It's not just what we do. It's who we are. See, we're born with a sin nature. That's why you can try all you want. You will never live a sinless life. Sin is as natural to us as barking is to a dog. There is no human representative who is blameless before God, who has never violated God's laws, and never tarnished his character, not even one. You see, Jesus Christ is the only one who fulfills God's righteousness as a human being. And because Jesus was fully human, he's fully able to represent us. He understands our weakness, you see. And he was able to live a righteous and holy life that pleased God. And he was able and willing to die for us, to pay the penalty for our sin, to go as our substitute. You see, Jesus Christ lived the life that we should have lived. And he also died the death that we should have died. But there's more. Jesus rose again. He rose from the dead to conquer death, to crush the curse, to set us free. And that's why we're so stoked and freaked out about Easter. Because Jesus rose from the dead. He proved that he was who he said he was. And that he proved he had power over sin and death. And that we can too in Christ. See, Jesus takes away our guilt and our shame and and death and he gives us life and he gives us his perfect nature and so we don't need anyone else we don't need anything else christ and christ alone and that leaves us with our next point which is this receive salvation through christ alone now as i mentioned jesus doesn't just say do he says it's done he says he's done for us what we can't do for ourselves, and now he offers this as a free gift to us a free gift that we only need to receive. 
Colossians 1, 21 to 22 says, this includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemy, separated from him by your evil thoughts and desires and actions. Yet now he's reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. And as a result, he's brought you into his very own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. What Jesus Christ has done is so amazing. It's so beautiful and gracious and loving. And yet, why do people reject this free and undeserved gift? I'll tell you what I think. I think it's pride. <laughs> That's what it was for me. I mean, for many years, I resisted God because of pride. I've always been sort of this self-reliant, kind of skeptical, practical kind of guy. I'd kind of compare myself to others and survey and look around and say, yeah, you know what, I'm kind of a good guy, better than most. <laughs> Maybe that counts for something. And I really wanted to do things my way. And I didn't want God to come in my life and kind of mess it up and tell me what to do. I mean, who wants that? He'd just screw it up, right? Augustine said this, a leader in the early church. He said, pride is the root of all sin. And nothing, nothing confronts our pride and our self-righteousness like humbling ourselves to receive a free gift of salvation from Jesus Christ. You know, that requires such a level of humility that it takes this free gift and makes it very costly. You know what? Pride doesn't all just, you know, mess up and keep people away from God. Pride also can taint hearts within the church. And that's, as we've been talking about the life of Martin Luther, that's what was going on in that day. You see, people were striving for power and position instead of honoring Christ. And there was this guy named Prince Albert of Brandenburg. Okay, now Prince Albert wanted to be the Archbishop of Mainz, Germany. Now, there was a problem. Prince Albert was under 25 years old, which is one of the stipulations. And he also, he wasn't allowed to hold multiple archbishopships. However, church officials told Albert that if he were to raise $500,000, he could get a special dispensation to kind of bend the rules a little bit. So Pope Leo X told, uh, you know, he was building St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, but he, he told Albert, here's an idea. I want you to go to the wealthy Fugger family. I want you to ask them to borrow some money and then raise the rest through indulgences. Now, what indulgences were is at the time, the, te the, the church of Martin Luther's day was selling these indulgences, which were said to be pieces of paper that carried extra grace. That what Christ did was so gracious, there was extra grace, and the church could sell you that grace through an indulgence that would absolve them of their sins. This enraged Martin Luther. But what really put him over the top is that there was a Dominican friar, Johann Titzel, who was going out to sell indulgences for Prince Albert. And what he told the people is if they bought these indulgences, that they could free their loved ones from purgatory. 
See, purgatory was a place that the church was teaching where people would go after death to purge them of their sins. And so Johann Titzel went around with a very cute little jingle. So baut der Finnig im Kasten klink, die Stella aus dem Verfiger springt. Which meant, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, quickly the soul from purgatory springs. Martin Luther raged as his parishioners stopped coming to church, stopped coming to confession, telling them they'd already paid for their sins through their indulgences. So Luther went and wrote up his 95 theses and hammered them to the door and called for a theological debate to argue that indulgences do not move, remove guilt and sin. Only Christ removes guilt and sin. And grace is not bought. It is the free gift of God. And as Luther began to question the church and its teachings and its leaders, it began to stir quite the controversy. And at one point, Luther's mentor, Johann von Stauzbeck, sent a letter to ask him, what in the world are you teaching that's causing all this stir? And Luther had this quote. He said, I teach that people should put their trust in nothing but Jesus Christ alone, not in their prayers, their merits, or their own good deeds. Trust in Christ alone. Now, the church of Martin Luther's day, they went awry when they began to place themselves in an authority above God's word. And it's shocking where that led them. But I want you to think about this. This is something that we do every day. When we hear and know God's word and choose to reject God's truth and go our own way, isn't that placing ourselves above God? Our pride leads us to believe that we can have our own truth that we live by. Galatians 3.22 says, But the scriptures declare that we're all prisoners of sin. So we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. You know, I can quote Bible verses. I can cite historical facts, physical evidence. I can appeal to your logic. But honestly, this is not a head issue. This is a heart issue. See, Jesus healed people. People watched him as he opened the eyes of the blind, helped the deaf and dumb speak and hear the crippled to stand and walk. And they saw that, and yet they still killed him. <laughs> and then after he rose again, he stood in front of them, and still people refused to give their life to him. You see, this is a heart issue, a pride issue, a control issue. Let's face it, we all got issues. But God can break through all of our issues. And that's what he did for me. And all I can say is that as hard as I fought against God, at one point in time, God's spirit opened my heart. And I didn't understand it all. I didn't. But in a place of just raw truth and brokenness, I just poured out my heart to God and said, God, I need you. I am so lost. Please forgive me. Jesus, please save me did he did romans 10 9 and 10 says if you declare with your mouth 
Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. <laughs> For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. You see, a single act of trust in God and faith is all that God asks, and he is ready and so willing to apply Christ's forgiveness to you, to adopt you as his child. God, I believe. I believe that Jesus is Lord. I believe he rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. Jesus, I trust in you. You see, when I did that, God was no longer a stranger. And God's word was no longer sounded like a foreign language to me. I'm telling you, when I read it before, it was like, what in the world is going on here? And all of a sudden, it was like a love letter to me. And God's spirit began just to reveal God's love to me, to teach me. My heart began to lean toward following Jesus, and it has not been a perfect ride, I'll tell you. But each day, God is teaching me and learning and growing in God's grace, which leads to our next point and our last point, and that's to live a Christ-centered life. To live a Christ-centered life. You see, to practice sola Christus, Christ alone, is to purposely, passionately pursue Jesus Christ in all of our life. Because it's so easy for us, right, to stick Jesus in the little corner, like our Sunday morning corner. <laughs> That's kind of where we want him, not give him all of our life, because we still struggle with wanting to be in the driver's seat, right? And just have Jesus in the back seat in case we need him. <laughs> Did you know that if we were to measure the distance between the earth and the sun, you know how big that long that is? That's 92 million miles, right? Now, if you were to take that amount of distance, reduce it to the thickness of a sheet of paper. If 92 million miles was the sheet of paper that you're taking your notes on right there, did you know that the distance from Earth to the nearest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high? That's how far away the nearest star is. And that's the diameter of our Milky Way galaxy, why that would be the equivalent of a stack of papers 310 miles high. Now, according to data from the Hubble spacecraft, astronomers calculate that there are at least 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe. Wow. And Hebrews 1.3 says this, that Jesus Christ holds the universe together by the word of his power. And I ask you this, is this the type of person you ask into your life to be your personal assistant? Jesus Christ deserves the same place in your heart that he holds in the universe. Make Christ the center of your life. To live a Christ-centered life is to place Jesus above all other things. Martin Luther said this. Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. You see, the Apostle Paul, after telling us all about the supremacy of Christ, goes on later in the book of Colossians to tell us about what it means to live for him. And in Colossians 3, 1 to 5, and verse 10, it says this. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your, your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits at the place of honor at God's right hand. 
Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life. Your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. So put to death the sinful, evil, earthly things lurking within you and put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. You see, we are urged to get rid of our old life and to live the new life that God's given to us as God's children. With God's spirit in you, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God who teaches you, comforts you, who guides you and directs you. It's the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of power and truth. God tells us that when we walk by his spirit, we won't carry out the desires of the flesh. The Bible tells us that God speaks to us through his word, his living word, the Bible, and that it can teach us what's right and wrong and make our lives more like Jesus. Colossians 3, 16 and 17 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Jesus' work is complete. It's done. It's finished. It's full. It's satisfying. There's nothing left undone. You see, we come to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And next week, we will celebrate this to the glory of God alone. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, pray that you open our hearts and our minds and eyes to see you in all your glory. And it would be the, the burning desire of our hearts, God, to place you above all other things. God, we need your help with that. We struggle, we stumble, we fall. We thank you that you are a God of grace, a God of forgiveness, but you're a God of power as well. By your spirit, God, help us to run the race that's before us, keeping our eyes fixed on you. God, I believe in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to transform lives. And I believe that the spirit of God, just as he did to me, unveils truth to those whose eyes are blind, that you can open the eyes of the blind, that you can soften even the hardest hearts. And I pray, God, that you use your truth and your word by your spirit to set the captives free. And that they would call out to you, God and discover their father who created them long ago, who has a purpose and meaning and value for their life, who will love them to the end. God, may they turn their heart to you. We thank you, God. It is your work. In Jesus' name.